The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. topic is related to the weekend, Reformation weekend, and the title is a Neurotic Monk and a Gracious God. It's a title I borrowed from a phrase that R.C. used in his book, The Holiness of God, to refer to Luther as neurotic. Why was Luther neurotic? It had everything to do with what is leading up to our text. Our text is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And as you are locating that paragraph, let me set the context. If we were to go back and read from 1-1 on through to chapter 3, verse 21, what we would find is, of course, first the introduction. And very quickly in the verses of that introduction, Paul takes us to the theme of this epistle. We need to understand this. This is an epistle written to a group of Christians that are in the lion's den. This is not only Christians in the Roman Empire, these are Christians in the capital city of Rome. And this is not just Rome at any time in the ancient world, this is Nero's Rome. And so we know of the dictators, of the tyrants that ruled in this past century and in our own day, and they don't hold a candle to the ferocity of this Emperor Nero. And this is a young band of Christians. They are a relatively new sect, and they are in a precarious position. And as the Apostle Paul wrote his epistle to these believers in Rome, he could have talked about any number of things, couldn't he? He could have encouraged them in any number of ways. He could have stressed to them any number of things that would be important. And there is one thing that Paul wants to stress in this epistle. And it is one thing that was absolutely necessary given the exigencies of the moment in which this original audience found themselves, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there's Nero on the throne. The situation could not be worse. And what does Paul need to talk to them about? the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he thunders, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we have the introduction. And we find out why we need the gospel from verses 118 right up until chapter 3, verse 20. We need the gospel because of one word, condemnation. And this is the theme that dominates these early chapters of the epistle. Whether you are a Jew and you had the privilege of being given the law, or you are a Gentile, there is one thing that is true of you. You stand condemned. Guilty 
before a holy God. That is why we have a neurotic monk. Because he read these chapters. And he understood what this meant. In fact, it was in the 1510s that Martin Luther, as a professor of biblical studies and theology at the University of Wittenberg, was lecturing on this very epistle. And he was neurotic because he could not bring himself to agree with his contemporaries of the solution to this problem of condemnation. All around him, the answer, the answer from his church that should have known better, the answer was to strive to earn, to merit God's favor. And Luther read these opening chapters of Romans, and he knew to the very core of his being that no amount of striving, no amount of striving would ever be sufficient to overcome this problem of condemnation. And so Luther was neurotic. But then we come to this paragraph. I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this paragraph is one of the most densely packed paragraphs in all of Scripture. This this Mount Everest of texts, Romans, and here we are at the very peak at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I've made my final migration to Presbyterianism. I was told that I have presbyopia. <laughs> I really only wear these to let Pastor Rogers know that I am older than I look. <laughs> I do not need these. They are just a prop. If you haven't already, please locate in your Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We will read this paragraph through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's holy, authoritative, and inerrant word. And may you receive it as such. It is in this paragraph that we come really to the heart of what the Reformation was about. 
It is in this paragraph, having detailed in almost agonizing fashion our condemnation. Earlier in this chapter, as if to prove his point, Paul simply strings together a number of quotations from the Old Testament. And with each one, the nail is being driven further into the coffin. And then we come to this passage. And we have this wonderful expression, but now. And now we're going to learn something. We're going to learn about the one thing that matters, and that is the righteousness of God. This doctrine of justification, as it is unpacked in this paragraph, there are five things that we can say about it that we can see in this passage. The first thing about justification that Paul teaches us is that it is apart from the law. It is apart from the law. Now, sometimes when Paul uses the word law, he means specifically to that body of law of the Old Testament God's revealed law to his people, the Jewish people. Sometimes when Paul uses the word law, he means a more universal application, a law, as it were, that is general to mankind, that law of human endeavor or human striving to somehow earn or merit God's favor. And we see that played out in the religions of the world, and we see that played out in various worldviews of this idea of somehow, through our merits, earning favor with God. In the preceding context, Paul's stressing that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are condemned. He probably has in mind here, more specifically, that revealed law of the Old Testament. But by way of application, it encompasses both. Whether it was a misunderstanding and abuse of the law, or whether it is that perennial human desire to somehow please God by meriting His favor, by somehow warranting him to look favorably upon us. And so, people even literally beat their breast so as to somehow come into a reconciliation with some deity. Whatever it is, whether it is the Old Testament law or it is that, that is not how we are entered into a relationship with the righteous and holy God. The righteousness of God comes to us apart from the law. Apart from the law. We're also told early on, right there in verse 21, the second thing of justification, it is always, it has always rather been God's plan of salvation. We see it. It says, Paul says that it was revealed through the law and the prophets, that the law and the prophets bear witness to this. This is shorthand for the Old Testament books. And there in the Old Testament, the foreshadowings, the hinting, the pointers of Christ to come. We see it even by inference in the garden. 
as Adam and Eve, and they cover themselves with this inadequate covering of the fig leaves. And then along comes this skin of the animals that is provided for them. And where does this skin of the animals come from but a sacrifice of animals? And as the pages of Scripture unfold and as a biblical theology unfolds before us, we see indeed this plan of sacrifice, of blood atonement. And this sacrifice through the generations, through the centuries, was not those sacrifices that brought about the forgiveness of sins, but what those sacrifices bore witness to. Whom those sacrifices bore witness to. They were pointers, they were foreshadowing, but this was always God's plan of redemption, justification in Christ. So we learn it's apart from the law. We learn that it's always been part of God's plan of salvation. And thirdly, we learn that it is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely necessary for our sinfulness. Again, Paul reiterates the theme. It's the verse we all memorize as part of the Romans road. There it is, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our need, that's our true problem, and that's why justification is absolutely necessary. Because we are sinners. We are sinners, as Luther is going to say, at the root, the very core of our being. And as sinners, we sin. Not only is justification absolutely necessary because of who we are, it is absolutely necessary because of who God is. We see it in this paragraph. God is righteous. And we see it how it ends. That God might be just and the justifier. That God is the perfect standard of righteousness and justice and holiness and purity. And we as sinners in God as righteous and just and holy... It is both of those truths that make justification absolutely necessary. You know, these verse divisions and chapter divisions were added much later. In fact, they were added for the first time in the English Bible, in the Geneva Study Bible, produced by these Marian exiles in Calvin's Geneva. But there's something fitting that Romans 3 falls where it does. In Romans 1, we're introduced to a fundamental concept of the wrath of God. After Paul introduces the theme of the book, the very first, the very first next line is this. For the wrath of God is revealed. And then the text that you read for us, Pastor, Romans 5. What a glorious transformation of words, isn't it? To go from the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1 to peace. Therefore, we have peace with God at Romans 5. And what is in between wrath and peace? What is not in between is that God lifted up the corner of some cosmic rug and used some cosmic broom to simply sweep our sins under there and tuck it over nicely. 
What is in between is the payment for those sins that separate us from this holy God, the payment for those sins that leave us deserving of nothing but His wrath. And what is in between the wrath of God and peace with God is Romans chapter 3 and justification. Having been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we who were under God's wrath, we have peace with God. Justification is absolutely necessary. It is due to our need, and it is due to God's nature. Fourthly, we learn that justification is by faith alone. We see it a couple of times in this text. We see it at verse 22. And so there in verse 22, we see that it is through faith in Jesus Christ. We see it again in verse 25, that it is received by faith. Now, it made its way into the 1940s black and white Luther movie. Maybe it's owing to poetic license. I'd like to think it actually happened. There's Luther in his study Romans is open. He's pouring over this very paragraph, these very verses. And he reaches and grabs his quill and he dips it in a little ink. And there in the margin next to these verses, he writes, Sola, by faith alone. That this justification comes to us by faith alone. And then there is a fifth thing that we learn, and I want to spend our time here. This fifth thing, and it's in the hymn that we sang prior, this fifth thing that Paul teaches us about justification is that it is in Christ alone. Take a look with me at verse 25. We see that this redemption is ours in Christ Jesus, And then Paul says this in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this is one of the most crucial theological words we are going to encounter in the pages of Scripture, propitiation. It is one that a number are saying we should no longer use this word. It's difficult grammatically. It has a lot of syllables. People may not be able to pronounce it or learn it. It's a challenging word. It's clunky. And not only is it grammatically problematic, it's theologically problematic. Do we really need to be talking about bloody sacrifices and a bloody atonement and a bloody death? And what is really at the bottom of a distaste of this word, is it not how offensive it is to us? The fact that it takes the death of Christ to satisfy the God's, to satisfy God's wrath, the fact that it takes the precious blood of the eternal Son who became man to satisfy God's wrath, what does that say about us? What does that say about how despicable we truly are? It does not surprise me that there are those who would just as soon jettison the doctrine of propitiation. 
that would just as soon skip over this word. It's a hard word. It's a hard word for what it means for us. It's a fascinating word. It doesn't occur many times in the New Testament, the Greek word. The Greek word is hilasterion. Now, I know, you're wondering, why is that important to know? Luther showed me something about this text that I'd never seen before. Luther was quite a linguist, but he liked Greek better than he liked Hebrew. And he would often read the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I'm so glad that he did. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 25. Here in Exodus chapter 25, we come across what a beautiful text on the tabernacle. God, holy God, desired to meet with his people. In fact, verse 8 of Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 tells us this. And let them make me a sanctuary, a holy dwelling. That's what sanctuary literally means. A holy dwelling, a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. And he's going to give them the exact pattern. And we're going to see recorded that they build it exactly to specification. Verses 10 to 16, we read about the ark. Now you know the story, this tabernacle. It was meant to be literally the center of Israel. So as the tabernacle was set up, the camps were to be set up going out from it. And there was the courtyard, and the tabernacle was set off-center within the courtyard because at the very center of the courtyard would be that small chamber within the tabernacle itself, the Holy of Holies. And in the center of the Holy of Holies would be this piece of furniture, this ark, made of gold, made by an incredibly skilled craftsman, And on top of this ark would be the mercy seat. It was literally in the center of God's people. And it was there that God would meet with his people. And once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, two lambs were taken, both of them were spotless without blemish, pure white lambs. And one was slightly luckier than the other priest would put his hands on that lamb. That would signify the transference of the sin of the people onto that lamb, and the lamb would leave the camp. And then the other not-so-lucky lamb was taken, was slain. Its blood poured out. And the blood of that lamb was captured. And the high priest would walk into the tabernacle and pass through that veil into the Holy of Holies and stand before the Ark of the Covenant and see the cherubim with their wings outstretched made of gold and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. This is how it's described from God to Moses. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, 
and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And notice these words. There I will meet you. Now here's the beauty of this. The word mercy seat in Hebrew is the word kippuret. As if it's saying the atonement place. Kippur is the word for atonement, to cover. And mercy seat is kippuret. Just adding an et on the end of that word. The atonement place could be a translation of that. The mercy seat. But here's what's fascinating. When the translators of the Septuagint got to this word, they used the Greek word hilasterion to translate mercy seat. The same exact word that's used in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that we translate propitiation. And now here's where the light bulbs went off for Martin Luther. Do you see it? Jesus is our mercy seat. And there God meets us. God had a design for one place where he would meet his people in the Old Testament. And it was at that mercy seat when the blood of that lamb that would signify the shedding of the blood of the lamb to come. And God has designated one place where he will meet us. And it is at the cross. And it is through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of our offended God. And he is our mercy seat. And there... There at the cross, God meets us. This is the gospel that had laid hidden and obscured through centuries of a church that had lost its way. And this was the message that God, in his choosing of this human instrument, Martin Luther, And the other reformers, it was this message that God once again brought to the fore and once again allowed the light of the gospel to shine in the darkness. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel that was necessary and true for the 16th century, and it is necessary and true for the 21st. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. There's one more verse I want to look at with you. We will step out of the paragraph for a moment and look at verse 27. Paul raises a question. It's a significant implication of this teaching, and he raises the question, then what becomes of our boasting? 
It's an important question. It's easy for us to think that the plan of salvation is something we can contribute to. Paul has obliterated that idea. And now this is a logical conclusion. What has become of our boasting? It is excluded. It is ruled out of bounds. It doesn't even come into play. It's not even a thought, our boasting. Why does Paul say this? I think there is something, again, perennial to us that thinks, even though we know these truths, somehow we think we still somehow must merit God's favor. Or maybe we think in the opposite direction and we think too highly of ourselves. You know, maybe it's not just uh, the sovereign pleasure of God's will to choose between the just and the unjust. Maybe there's something that's actually worthy in the just that God sees. And that's why He, in His kindness, gives us His grace. You know, we lived here for 17 years, and I loved Lancaster County. My wife was born here. I was a transplant. It's a great place. It's a can-do place, Lancaster County. And that's good. Those are good things. It's an admirable quality. We need to push back against this culture of entitlement that is encroaching upon us. God made us to work. He called us to work. Work is a good thing. And we see it all around this county. I remember getting up at 5 a.m. I would actually set my alarm clock for 4.55 so that I could say, I got up before 5. (laughs) Because surely if you're up before 5, God will notice that. (laughs) So I would get up and I'd be very proud of myself for being such a good person. And I'd look out my window and I'd see my old order Mennonite farmer across the street and he's already been up since 4 o'clock. No, 3.55 actually. (laughs) And he's already milked 100 cows, plowed a field, had his first breakfast and put another coat of paint on the barn. Don't let a strength become a fatal weakness. Because when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the gospel, there is nothing that we contribute to the equation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, which, by the way, is a gift. And it is in Christ alone, and we save the best sola for last. It absolutely has to be this way. And why does it have to be this way? Because salvation is even bigger than you and me having our sins forgiven and brought into a relationship with God and being reconciled. Salvation is even bigger than that. Because at the end of the day, it's about His glory. And God has so designed his plan of salvation, the truthfulness of it, the beauty of it. God has so designed it for one purpose, to be a manifestation and a demonstration of his glory in his glory alone. And what becomes of our boasting? 
it's excluded. Because there is only one thing we can boast about, and it is God, His power of salvation, and it is for His glory alone. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for this occasion to remember anew this precious gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us clarity on this message. Help us to be a grateful people, to never lose the wonder of our salvation. And may we indeed exclude from all of this our boasting, drive away from us even the slightest idea that we bring something to the table, that we contribute in some way, drive that far from us, so that we may exalt Christ, so that we may do this for your glory and for your glory alone. In Christ's name and by his precious blood, we pray. Amen.